Um, I've passed around uh, a little chart here that says growth and holiness in the early monastic tradition. Uh, if you need an extra copy, Brother Timothy's got one, and uh, we could probably share if we need to. I'll get to that in just a moment. So, I've been working my way through with all of you the Gospel of John, and today, and then in September, I plan to finish what's called the Book of Signs. So that's usually referred to as the first 12 chapters of John. And so we're going to do the last two signs today uh, and next month. So today we're going to do uh, the healing of the man born blind. But I'm going to give some introductory notes for you because uh, uh, I, I want to give the fullest sacramental reading of this sign that I can. And so I need to explain what I mean by sacramental reading, etc., all of the seven signs in the book of signs, we have the changing of the water into wine at Cana. We have the healing of the centurion's son. We have the healing of the man uh, by the side of the pool. Uh, we have the multiplication of the loaves, which we're meditating on on Sundays over the uh, month of July and August. And then uh, also Christ walking on the water. That's part of that same story. And then we get the healing of the man born blind, and finally the most important one, which is the raising of Lazarus. All of these signs, and I'm using that word deliberately, as I'm going to explain in a moment, uh, are commentaries on the sacraments of the church, particularly baptism and Holy Eucharist. And if we take them seriously as commentaries, we might view the sacraments differently because uh, we often interpret the sacraments through kind of scholastic theology. There's nothing wrong with that. It's part of the church's tradition, but it's not the earliest tradition. Uh, the scholastics, you know, by monastic standards are kind of Johnny-come-latelys. Uh, but uh, in the early church, there was a different way of interpreting the sacraments. Um, and it was based in this uh, symbolism, the efficacy of signs. <coughs> Uh, rather than uh, uh, the hylomorphic analysis of Aristotle being applied to the sacraments, which we might be more familiar with today. Form and matter, we look at that. Um, and if, but if we view the sacraments differently than we do now, if we read them through the signs in John's Gospel, we also might take our lives in the spirit differently. And that's my interest, is how do we live a more persuasive and authentic Christian life how do we give witness to the gospel in a more authentic way? My contention, my strong contention, you know, there, there are weaker versions of this argument, and I'm not going to make the strongest argument, but I'm going to present it just to be provocative. My strongest contention is that the Reformation and the Enlightenment uh, had a certain consequence that's distorted Catholic spiritual theology. The, while the historical roots of this problem are earlier, than these two events. The Reformation and the French Revolution especially uh, gave institutional backing and political structure to the bad ideas that, that then we bring to our interpretation of the sacraments. And the principle I'm thinking of particularly is the primacy of the secular order, the temporal order. Um, that the world exists as a kind of neutral space. So God might have created the world, but then he left. And the world is kind of over here, and then God sort of shoots grace in from time to time when he feels like it, or when we ask him to. 
And so when we have to pray to God, we've got to like yell at him somewhere else, you know, like, hey, to get his attention. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm caricaturing this in a bit. But, but this is, I think, say, our scientific mindset. We understand that the universe kind of exists. And then there's sort of supernatural stuff that comes in from outside that can work miracles or can uh, change hearts or whatever. Rather than seeing the cosmos as being held in place by God who is everywhere, who informs all the things, who is responsible for the way things are as a whole. So everything that God has created can be a sign, can speak to us in some way of God's loving presence. Um, now, the, what I said about institutionalizing this bad worldview, uh, we often talk about the separation of church and state, and actually that's a Christian idea. But in our world, we've tended to uh, subordinate the spiritual uh, realm to the temporal realm. Uh, so the separation of the two is good. The primacy of one or the other has been debated for a long time. I think we could say the spiritual realm is primary. That just makes sense. It's eternal. Uh, this cosmos is not. Uh, but how we interpret that uh, is important because, for instance, I'm going to say in a moment, that doesn't mean we can ignore the temporal order. We can't just ignore the universe. It has to have some role in God's uh, providence. So uh, back to my text here so I don't get too far off. So our political systems have emphasized the separation of the temporal and the spiritual. What is significant about the sacraments from this point of view uh, is, uh, I need to back up for just one moment and say our default position today is that this visible world is, is primary, it's objective, it's social, uh, whereas religion is more subjective, more having to do with faith, uh, it's more individualistic. Everybody can choose a faith for themselves, but you're not allowed to choose science. Science is objective. Uh, where religion is, you know, just whatever you think is best. You know, we have to sort of uh, allow for large areas of privacy and subjectivity in areas of spirituality. And what does this do then for the sacraments if we're infected with this kind of thinking? Uh, well, let me say this, the sacraments could address this problem if we take them seriously in the right way because uh, they are spiritual objects, but they also uh, exist objectively in this temporal order, right? So bread, wine, water, they're all things you can see, touch, feel, consume, taste, uh, but they also convey spiritual realities, right? In, in, the, in the most forthright possible way. And, but we, we can only see this through faith. So faith is that virtue that allows us to see what the thing really is rather than uh, only interpreting it by sensory information, okay? So we see behind the thing to the spiritual reality and what God is doing in our lives through the temporal order. So it connects the two in a really deep way. So the spirit remains primary but in this world, in, in this dispensation, uh, uh, the spiritual world is accessible through the physical world, uh, through the created order. They're not separable except by analysis. Okay, so we can we can separate the two to analyze them, but in fact, 
they always inhere. Uh, and I'm going to cover this a little more in just a moment. And we can't, if we say that the spirit takes precedence over matter or the temporal order, we can't bypass the temporal order, even so. Uh, this would be, a, a, there are various versions of this kind of spiritualist heresy that, that ignores or bypasses the physical world. Uh, we have Marcionism, we have Manichaeism, various kinds of Gnosticism. And I think it's fair to say certain tendencies within Protestantism. Uh, so uh, a rejection of the church structures, a rejection of certain sacraments and so on. Uh, sola fide, say faith alone rather than, you know, faith operating through stuff, right? Uh, God speaking to us through the created world, through priests, through uh, our spouses to whom we've been sacramentally connected, right? That kind of thing. So as long as we are in this world, we live in an in-between place, a place that's mediated by signs or symbols or sacraments. So uh, we, St. Paul says, you know, we see dimly as in a mirror right now. We don't see face to face yet. That is what our, what our hope is. Now we see rather by faith, but we, we st it's not just an internal thing. When we say we see by faith, it means we look at the forms of bread and wine on the altar and say, that's Christ. Okay, so we see the thing with our eyes, but we interpret it with our faith. Okay, and it's not, again, separable from the created order. Uh, what we're going to discover, and what I'm going to argue for this morning, is that all of creation can be interpreted this way, not just the sacraments. But the sacraments give us the key. They give us the key. And I would call this the sacramental dispensation. So in the Old Testament, people lived in the realm of shadows. They, they had an idea about God. Uh, the Jews had, had a privileged idea about God and actual knowledge of God through uh, his revelation. With the coming of Christ, he has instituted the liturgy and the sacramental order by which now all of creation is filled with God's messaging to us, right? So God is, is speaking to us through all things. And we can read those signs now because the Holy Spirit has enlightened us. But we're still not completely home. And we're not seeing God face to face yet. We're on our way there. But we have a much more privileged position than people did before the incarnation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see this in the church. Uh, the church is divided into sections. There's the the narthex, that's the outside shadowy part. There's the nave, that's the sacramental part. And then there's the sanctuary, which symbolizes the Christ's actual presence in the fullest way. Uh, and so uh, we have all these things built into our theology if we can learn how to read it properly. Okay, so let me end this introduction with two corollaries to this. I mentioned when we started talking about the book of signs, we have a tendency uh, to reduce the signs to miracles. We use this word miracle. And again, there's nothing wrong with it really, but I just want to make sure we understand that uh, John chooses a special word, semeon, sign, for a purpose. So we tend, when people talk about miracles in the public square, and I may be a little jaundiced about this because I was part of an ongoing debate with atheists for a long time. And the question of miracles would always come up, you know, do you believe in miracles and so on? And the, the working definition of miracle is always something like, well, again, 
there's the cosmos over here and there's God here. And God like goes in and like changes something. (laughs) There there are these laws of nature and then God says, ah, I'm really powerful. I'm going to change them. I'm going to do something that breaks the laws of nature. But if we understand that the laws of nature are God's condescension to us, it's part of his covenantal love of us. He gives us the regularity of the laws of nature so that we can participate with him in bringing about his purposes. We, we can understand how to grow our food, um, how to preserve it, uh, how to uh, raise children, how to build cities, to live together. We can do all this. We can cure diseases, all because God allows nature to go along certain predictable lines. But that's a condescension to us. God, God is not bound by that. And not because he's powerful in a manipulative way that he says like, yeah, I know I've told you guys I'm going to do this, but now I'm just, I'm going to change it. <laughs> you know, by the way, uh, Allah can do that. Uh, but, but our theology is different from Islam in this, in this particular place. Um, the laws of nature are God's covenantal expression to us of his fidelity. But when it's for our benefit, he, he can do whatever. The spirit is, is completely sovereign over any of these laws of nature. This is why the risen Christ can go through walls and be in several places at once, he can appear as different people. Uh, he, can, he can be the gardener. He can be the, the guy walking on the road. Uh, and he can be recognizable or not recognizable to the, the apostles, right? So, um, but he's not doing this in a manipulative way. This is simply Christ uh, demonstrating for us the power of the Spirit. And this is what we hope for, that we will participate in this. So, uh, a sign is rather God teaching us through the events of of the world through material objects, interpreting for us what he intends to do, what he is doing. So these signs, again, are commentaries, interpretations of our life in Christ. And this is part of the general order of things. We, We live in a world that is governed by signs. If you see a stop sign, uh, the stop sign itself doesn't stop your car, okay? But it, it communicates something on an intellectual level or rational level, and we understand, oh, I'm supposed to stop. I have to press the brakes now. So the sign does have this efficacy, but it's, the sign itself is just a piece of metal with paint on it. It's not, uh, it's not the action of stopping. Okay, so it communicates something, but it's not the thing itself. Uh, similarly, when I'm speaking to you, you're hearing ideas that come from my mind and my heart, but you're not inside my mind and heart. You're hearing signs, sounds that you interpret as signs that tell you what's going on, hopefully, inside me. And so you, we can communicate with each other. So we always communicate through signs. Uh, but in... The world to come will know each other directly and we'll know God directly. We won't have to exchange signs. We can if we want to in that, you know, in that dispensation. But in this dispensation, we're always limited in this way. So, second corollary. We can grow in our ability to read signs. Um, and so, signs, because they open onto this spiritual realm, the spiritual realm is not limited in the way that the temporal realm is. 
The example I usually give, because I always start retreats when I preach retreats, I start with this point. Um, at community recreation, uh, if we have a, a plate full of cookies, every cookie that I take, you can't have, right? So the physical things are limited. If I take all the cookies, nobody else gets any at all. But in the spiritual realm, if I become more courageous, if I, if I acquire a greater portion of, of fortitude, I don't take it away from you, okay? I don't, I don't, it's not at your expense. And in fact, the thing about the spiritual world is the more courageous I become, uh, the better chance there is that other people around me will become courageous because uh, we'll learn from others' virtue, we'll learn from others' learning how to act and how to think. So the spiritual world actually is, has this fecundity to it that the temporal order, temporal order is always limited in a certain way, right? But the spiritual world is not uh, because it, it partakes of God's own, uh, we would say, energies in, in uh, Eastern theology, but it's God's grace. And so there's no limit to that. We, we can always grow in greater knowledge of God and greater appropriation of, of God's own life, okay? So, uh, but again, we can't, in, in this world, we can't bypass the temporal order. Always have to go through, uh, be anchored in that. So, uh, we can grow in grace, we can grow in knowledge of God, we can grow in holiness. We do so through uh, our learning how to interpret signs. So, I have given you this chart. It's time for the chart. What we're going to see in chapter 9 of John's Gospel is that this man who is cured from his blindness, the blindness is a sign of spiritual blindness. Okay, it's a sign. When he's cured of the blindness, he sees now, but his growth in understanding who Christ is, his growth in understanding of God, goes through stages. Okay, so it is something that is progressive. And uh, St. Mark, it's very interesting. There are these very curious parallels between John's gospel and Mark's gospel. I personally tend to think that they're the two earliest gospels, and I'm a bit of a, a renegade on that point because most people consider John to be later than the other gospels. But um, Mark has this very interesting story that Matthew and Luke don't copy, and it's uh, Jesus heals a man who is blind and he, he lays his hands on this man, and then he says, what do you see? He says, well, I see people, but they look like trees. <laughs> and they say, well, was it the case that Jesus couldn't heal him outright? That he could see people and they look like people? Or you know, is there something wrong? Did it not take right? You know? And so Jesus lays hands on him again, and he sees perfectly fine. Well, this is an image of the growth in understanding that our spiritual lives go through. So we're always on, on progress toward the kingdom. Uh, we do, we're, not, we're not healed once and for all when it comes to faith. We're always invited to grow. This is the, these are the stages that the early monks give us. Uh, and I've got, I guess, five columns here. The first one, uh, at, at the root of monastic theology are two major figures, Origen and Evagrius. Uh, unfortunately, both of them later, uh, many, many, many years after their deaths, uh, became controversial uh, because of some interpretations of their teachings, especially Evagrius. I think Evagrius uh, 
in particular was uh, unfairly treated. But he's a saint in the uh, Syriac church, uh, but he was not canonized in the West or East. Um, but anyway, he's the, he is the intellectual forebear of monastic spiritual theology. And John Cashin was almost certainly one of his disciples. And Cashin is a canonized saint. So Evagrius lists three things. This comes out of Platonism. Praktike, or the practical or active life. Physike, uh, which is the contemplative life applied to created things, to the natures of things, or what we call by, for short, natural contemplation. And finally, theoretike, or theology. And uh, this is the contemplation of God. Okay, uncreated realities. God as God manifests himself to us. Uh, so the, the contemporary words we use are the active life, the life of natural contemplation, and the life of theology. Um, this later on, much later again, in the 13th century, uh, becomes the division between the active and contemplative orders of religious in the church. So the active religious are those who uh, are primarily working in this first realm of of sanctification, and then the contemplatives are supposed to be striving for this, these second two uh, areas. Uh, but it becomes more of a, a juridical distinction rather than a, a spiritual theological distinction. So what does it mean to practice the, the practical life or active life? It means uprooting vice and planting virtues. So noticing where I'm prone to anger or where I'm prone to pride or gluttony, or whatever it is, and fighting against this vice, and then planting virtue, and uh, so becoming more courageous, becoming more prudent, becoming more just, uh, becoming more temperate, becoming more loving, more faithful, more hopeful, all right? So that's, that is, has to do with behavior, changing my behavior, changing my attitudes. What about what comes next? What comes next is natural contemplation. So this is that sign language, learning how to read the universe as a series of signs. So one of the things I've taken to saying is something like this. At Easter time, we have all these symbols of Christ. We have the Eucharist, we have the, the candle, we have the altar, which is stripped on Holy Thursday night and then re-clothed. Uh, at the Easter Vigil. We have the priest who leads the people into the darkened church with his own candle. These are all signs of Christ. And uh, if we think about it, Christ is more light-like than light. So when we see light, it's a sign of Christ. What does light do? It makes things visible. Well, Christ does that, but even better than light does it, but on a spiritual level. Uh, Christ is more rock-like than rock when it comes to being strong, right? He's more bread-like than bread. He's more nourishing than bread is. So all these things are signs to us of Christ's presence and the qualities that he brings to strengthen us and give us uh, what we need to grow in holiness. So you think of the ways in which the saints could see Christ in all things. Uh, we just finished reading a biography of St. Francis and of course, he has his famous canticle in which he thanks God for all these things that God has given because they're all signs of God's love. 
And you know, whether they're birds or water or wind or death or birth, or whatever it is, these are all ways God is training us to become real image bearers, to become who we're meant to be, uh, persons who are his adopted children, who are, whose image, uh, divine image has been restored. So that natural contemplation is learning how to read these physical symbols and see God's presence, see what God is doing for us through all things. And again, the sacraments are the places where this is most efficacious and real. But then ultimately what we want to get to, what we're aiming for is the beatific vision. So the contemplation of God himself. And each of these steps, we we become freer and freer of the limitations of the material world and become closer and closer to God. Because they're given in stages, this doesn't mean that you have to get through stage one before you can start on stage two. They do tend to permeate each other. So we always have to be working on virtue. And there are lots and lots of warnings in the monastic tradition. Again, you can't bypass your membership in the physical world until you're dead, <laughs> until, until the next life, right? So um, a funny story, there was one of the, the desert monks, uh, Abba John the Dwarf, he's one of the more colorful uh, guys who lived in the uh, late fourth, early fifth century in Egypt. And when he was a young man, he told his brother, I'm, I'm uh, going off to pray, I'm leaving everything behind. Uh, I am, uh, I'm, I'm not going to need anything from now on because I'm just going to give myself to God and become like one of the angels. So about two days later, John's brother's in the house and there's a knock on the door and uh, he says, who is it? He says, it's your brother, John. He said, no, no, it can't be my brother, John. He's gone off and become an angel. (laughs) John says, open up, I'm hungry. (laughs) I need to eat, right? So uh, the fact that we are rooted in this world, that we do have to eat, uh, that we have to sleep, um, this is a, a safeguard that keeps us rooted again in this this symbolic reality. We can't jump beyond it just because we've grown in virtue. Uh, and another warning that the, uh, the uh, Desert Fathers give us is that uh, to the end of our lives, we'll never stop battling against gluttony and lust. Those will always be temptations for us. So, so we can't think just because we're having a lot of success in, in temperance that we've got it licked. Like that's a really dangerous temptation, okay? So we have to be watching all the time for temptations against virtue. Uh, We know that better than anything right now in the Catholic Church, unfortunately. Um, So, so the first stage is the reformation of our behavior. Oh, I guess I can tell you a little bit more about this chart. Uh, In the rule of St. Benedict, we see this. So for instance, when the community is to choose an abbot, they are to choose someone uh, who has merit of life and wisdom of teaching. Okay, so he, he is experienced in practice, the active life. He has a good, good habits. But he's also wise. He also knows what things mean, how to read the signs of the times. By the way, Father Brendan in his homily today, he, he uh, had two really great examples of natural contemplation. He said, what are deserts for? What are, right? I was really amazed when he said that because 
That's a great sort of way to look at things. Why did God create deserts? Well, to teach us about spiritual deserts, to teach us about our desires. That's what Father Brennan said, right? Teach us about hunger, about murmuring, about uh, fatigue, all those sorts of things, right? Um, and we, we understand that when we encounter the spiritual desert, how to interpret it. Because we can think about the real desert, real. See, I, I, even I make the mistake, right? Spiritual desert is more real than the physical desert. <laughs> but that doesn't mean we can get rid of the physical desert. So um, the rule of St. Benedict has many indications uh, that Benedict is in this tradition. Did you have a question, Alex? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, John Cashin, as I mentioned him already, he is one of the influences on the rule. And he wrote two major works, the Institutes and the Conferences. The Institutes are pretty much about the practical life, the active life. Uh, though they have some, there's some blending over into natural contemplation. Um, so the Institutes tell monks how to dress, when to sleep, how to pray the divine office, how to judge thoughts that are going on inside so as to grow in virtue, not to act on temptations to vice, etc. But then in the conferences, he says, now we're going to get to the really weighty teaching of the spiritual life. Okay? Uh, another distinction that we see in the monastic tradition is the synovium, uh, or the common life where monks live together, the real work there is the work of active life. So we live together to help each other correct our behavior. And then for those who are really adept at this, who have really grown in virtue, they can go off and become hermits or anchorites. And then they live in a more of a contemplative life. Okay. But again, we don't want to go out there too fast. And Cashin warns us that uh, it's very common for monks to think they've graduated into this uh, contemplative life. And the first thing that, that happens when they get out into, but really all it means is that uh, they found ways to ignore the brothers, the uh, annoying things about the brothers. And so as soon as they get out by themselves, they think, ah, the contemplative life. And then their pen doesn't work and they smash it. <laughs> they say, Aha, I'm not yet free of anger. So, so I'm not really ready to be uh, an anchorite yet. Okay, so there are ways we have, you know, we talked about this at the Catholic Reader Society last week. Uh, de the demonic elements in our life are very subtle and they can trick us into thinking we're further along than we are, right? So we have to be vigilant about these things. So Cashin gives us all this teaching on how to learn about our thoughts and then how to understand the created order. Um, good. So I think now it's time to look at John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. So here's an interesting thing. Why are there like birth defects, right? Why are there, why are people born blind or deaf or whatever it is? Why do bad things happen? Is it because we sinned? Well, not, maybe, maybe not. 
and at least in this case, our Lord is saying, no, it, it really doesn't have anything to do with anybody sinning. Uh, rather, this is to show that, again, real sight comes from God. Okay, it's very easy for us again to take for granted the things that we have that everybody else has. Our, our sight, um, I was talking to, to um, a friend of ours, Bob, who was just here, he fractured his kneecap back in May. And uh, after that, you don't take walking for granted. <laughs> you, know, and he's, you don't take bending your knee for granted. He was saying he's doing, working on this now. And uh, um, oftentimes we only appreciate things when we lose them, right? And we all know that. So uh, this is part of what our Lord is showing us. If there are these things about the world that don't seem to work right, it's not necessarily something where we can point a finger at somebody and say, ah, it's his fault, right? But rather we have to patiently wait for God to reveal his purposes. So in this case, it's going to be to reveal um, that uh, God, God's works will be manifest in his life. And then Jesus goes on to say, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So I, I mentioned that our Lord is more, like, is more light-like than light. Um, and he's alluding to this here. So the Son of God is visible in a certain immediate way uh, to the apostles. Um, though again, they, not everybody sees it. We're going to, you know... I don't know if it's next Sunday or the following Sunday, we're going to have a bunch of disciples leave Jesus because his teaching's too challenging. Uh, and so he asks the, the apostles, you know, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, well, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, right? Uh, so, so Peter has this insight about who Christ is, that he is the light of the world. He is the one who brings uh, the truth. But not everybody can see this yet. Uh, but in this particular passage where our Lord is, is walking through Jerusalem with his disciples, uh, it's time for him to do these things that will reveal God's presence in him so that others may believe. Uh, when he goes back to the Father, he will institute this sacramental dispensation, but we'll have to learn through faith how to see what's going on in a way that was different than uh, Different but analogous to what happens here. Because again, not everybody believes that it's, God, it's God's works being made manifest, right? Uh, the scribes and so on are going to look at this miracle and say, uh, no, it's, it's got to be some trick, right? So let's, let's continue on. So as the Lord said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Uh, there, there is so much to this, this chapter. I'm going to have to uh, gloss over a lot of it. But I'll just say, even the way our Lord does the cure, uh, he is very clearly alluding to Genesis 1 here. So spittle, according to the ancients, was condensed breath. Okay, So that he would mix spittle with clay is to infuse uh, dirt with spirit and his spirit in fact uh, so this is analogous to the spirit brooding over the waters at the beginning of time and then bringing creation out of the waters uh, so our lord is making reference to the creation here okay 
And he's also making reference to baptism. And we see this especially in St. Paul. Baptism is the new creation. It's the, the creation, the durable creation. So the first creation, uh, because of sin, has gotten broken, right? But the new creation after baptism is this creation that's going to be revealed as the eternal order of things, the new creation. Uh, so when the man is told to go wash, uh, he is baptized in sign. Okay? And what happens? He went and washed and came back seeing. Uh, now many of you probably know, if you, especially if you've been listening to me uh, give lectures on these things for some time, that in the early church, and still today, again, more, you hear this more in Eastern theology than in Western, uh, baptism is called enlightenment or illumination, okay? And I, I wrote kind of a joking article for our newsletter some years ago, which I reprinted in a slightly different form last year, uh, that, uh, you know, the enlightenment of the 18th century was... It's kind of a bogus version of enlightenment. It wasn't really enlightenment. The real enlightenment came with baptism. It came with Christ. But what do we mean by this? Uh, it means that instead of living in shadows and not knowing how to interpret the, the natural world, baptism gives us the grace that allows us to say, oh, I see. Uh, the bread and wine is not bread and wine. It's Christ's body and blood. Oh, I see. These people here, this is the body of Christ. This is the church. Like I can see that. Um, I can see that uh, the articles of faith proposed to me by the church are true. Aha, I get it. So it's, it's a spiritual enlightenment that allows us to understand the truth of the church's teaching, of the world around us, of the sacramental order, etc. cetera. Uh, this is a metaphorical thing, right? It's not physical sight. It's sight by faith. And, but in this story, it's still given to us in a sign. The guy, the guy literally went from being blind to being able to see in the physical order. Uh, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, hey, isn't this the guy who used to sit and beg? Some said, yeah, it's him. Others said, no, it's just someone who looks like him. And he said, I am the man. Okay, so right away, there's a division. There are some who say, Whoa, this is amazing. This guy can see now. How did this happen? And others who say, like, well, obviously no one ever is cured of blindness, so this must be some mistake. I rationalize it away. It's got to be someone else. Then they said to him, if it is you, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? Right, this, this is a bit ominous here. But he said, I don't know. Uh, so this in itself, again, this is a sign of this progressive illumination of the man born blind. So he has his physical sight, but he doesn't see the Lord right now. The Lord has disappeared. He doesn't know where he is. There's a bit of sort of shadowiness to his relationship with Christ at this moment. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So let's take him to the, uh, to the people who know theology. <laughs> that was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. 
Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Um, we've been passing around in the, uh, in the monastery an article by a theologian named David Bentley Hart. And um, his, he just came out with a, a, a translation of the New Testament, which is very, very idiosyncratic. Uh, I like David Bentley Hart very much. Uh, partly because he's, he's so provocative. In his translation of the New Testament, his goal was to be as ruthlessly literal as possible. So it's very disorienting because he doesn't change any tenses when they don't quite make sense. And, uh, but his point is that we often miss some of the meanings of the New Testament because we're used to translations that are sort of comforting and normal. And uh, the shockingness of the old Greek is missing in certain ways. Anyway, um, you can imagine his translation got a lot of flack from other theologians. And so he, he wrote a response to this. And um, one of the things he, he talks about, well, first of all, the, the article was, I think, called, the, for the ancients, the spiritual world was more real. More the, substantial and material. Yeah, more substantial. So this is my theme for today. You know, the spiritual world is more substantial. That's true for us, too. It didn't change since the ancients. They, they saw it. We tend not to, you know. Um, but in it, he talked about the fact that uh, the, the, the scriptures, to some extent, have been overturned. Like the Old Testament has been overturned with the coming of Christ. And uh, some brothers were talking about this. Uh, and I forget the words he used to, to talk about this. But it was a little bit dis discouraging or maybe scandalous to the brothers. And I pointed out that Gregory the Great, in his um, Moralia in Job, says more or less the same thing. He said, you know, a lot of times things, characters in the Old Testament who are bad turn out to be good in the spiritual world and vice versa. So he said uh, in the story of David and Bathsheba, uh, David commits adultery and murder and Uriah the Hittite uh, is, is murdered and wrongfully has his, his wife taken from him. But in the Spiritual reading, it's the opposite. It's Uriah needed to have his wife taken away from him. And David was, um, was correct uh, because this, these are signs. David is the sign of our Lord. Bathsheba is the sign of the church. And Uriah is the sign of the old covenant. And uh, so we have the scriptures being, the meaning of the scriptures being kind of reversed in the spiritual order. And David Bentley Hart was saying a similar thing. Now, why am I saying this? Because... Uh, this is a good question that the Pharisees raised. Well, wait a minute. God's law is really important, you know? We, we can't just overturn it. We're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, except under very strict circumstances. So this guy, since he did this work on the Sabbath, can't be from God. Sounds like a watertight argument. But again, with faith, we can see that this is erroneous. And our Lord... Uh, even said, you know, just a moment ago that he has to, as long as he's in the world, uh, he's got to work. Uh, and he says uh, earlier in chapter eight that his father is at work all the time, right? And so this image of God resting is a, is a sign. It's not meant to be understood literally that God is tired <laughs> and needs rest, you know? Uh, but it's uh, our Lord elsewhere, you know, this is one of the biggest controversies of our, our Lord's career that uh, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? So the Sabbath is, is to help us understand certain things about God's providence, etc. 
not to chain us to uh, certain types of observances. So that the fact that our Lord healed on a Sabbath is actually appropriate, as we hear elsewhere. But then there's a problem. Okay, so this seems like a watertight argument, but how could someone, they say, uh, if he's not from God, uh, how can he perform signs? If he's a sinner, this this doesn't make sense. How How can this happen? So there was a division among them. And elsewhere, again, our Lord says he came to bring division, right? So this is what's happening. There's those who line up on his side and against him. So they said again to the blind man, okay, let's, let's go through this again. Uh, you met him. He opened your eyes. What do you think? Is he from God or not? And this is very interesting again. The man says he's a prophet, okay? Uh, so again, his enlightenment is not total yet. He just sees him as one of the prophets, a pretty powerful prophet. But you know, Elijah and Elisha were pretty impressive signs. Uh, you know, the, the, the bones of Elisha could raise from the dead. So maybe he's just a prophet. That's not a bad start, but it doesn't get at the full truth. As we'll see, we're going to get there. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. And again, anytime we read the Jews in John's gospel, our first understanding should be the, the temple authorities. That that's ten, tends to be what he means when he says this. So the people who are responsible for making this decision about who he is, what are we going to do about this guy who's doing stuff on the Sabbath? Um, they say, well, this guy couldn't have been blind because... Uh, you know, he healed on the Sabbath, so he can't be from God. So there must be something else to it. So what do they do? Uh, they call his parents. <laughs> so, right? And they ask him, is this your son? And do you say that he was born blind? How does he see that? And um, the parents, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder if these parents uh, aren't meant to be uh, models of Adam and Eve. Because when Adam and Eve are caught with the fruit and hiding from God, he says, oh, what happened? And instead of saying, like, I ate the fruit, my fault. They say, like, yeah, the, the woman gave it to me. <laughs> it was not my fault. I just, you know, you gave her to me. And she says, well, it was the snake. You know, I, I, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, you put me here and put the snake here, this fruit. Uh, right? <laughs> and so they, they go to his parents, right? So the parents of the temporal order, the, our first parents from whom we get our, our physical bodies. And they say, I am not, not, don't talk to us, right? So, uh, yeah, this is our son. He was born blind, but we don't know anything more than that. Like, you know, so you'll have to go ask somebody else. We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. Yeah, he's old enough to speak for himself. We, we, you know, we kicked him out of the house when he was 18 or whatever. He could, it's up to him to tell you what's going on. Uh, why do they say this? Because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if someone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Uh, again, I would say that John the evangelist here is speaking from a certain experience because one of the divisions that took place after the resurrection was that you know, the original Christians were all part of the Jewish people, but those who confessed Christ were kicked out of the synagogue at a certain point. So there was this division uh, in the, the, the people of Israel about the interpretation of Christ. 
So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and, and said to him, give God the praise. We, we know that this man is a sinner. So you're going to say that too, right? And he answered, well, whether he's a sinner, I can't say. What I do know is that I was blind and now I see. Okay, so again, he's not, he realizes he's in a little danger here. <laughs> and the question is, is he, is he going to stand up for what happened? And uh, so he's, he's still kind of sitting on the fence. He's not a full, uh, his, his enlightenment hasn't taken full root yet. Uh, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Here's your chance to recant what you said before, right? And he says, uh, hey, I've already told you, but you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? So this is a pretty significant step forward. He's putting his foot down and saying, you know, I'm going to tell the truth about what happened. And, um, you know, obviously you're, you're trying to get me to say something against the truth. And then he says, uh, so you want to hear it again? You want to hear how he cured my blindness? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Okay, so this is again a theme throughout the gospels. The law was given through Moses. The law was good, but it belongs to that shadow dispensation. It's not, it's not part of the sacramental dispensation. Uh, grace and truth came through Christ, right? So, yes, they, these are disciples of Moses, but this is something new that God is doing, but they can't see it. Uh, we don't know where this man comes from. Well, that's, uh, that's a good admission to make because um, others have, you know, mocked our Lord because he came from Nazareth, uh, etc. The man answered, why, this is a marvel. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So uh, again, his faith is growing as he's working through this situation here. And this is gonna get him in trouble. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. So they, they contradict what our Lord said earlier, right? That, that this is the result of somebody sinning. Uh, and you would teach us. And so they cast him out. And what happens? So here's another, this is a way to read signs. What happens when you're persecuted for your faith? Uh, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he found him. Our Lord came to him, right? And he said, do you believe in the son of man? So you, do you believe that the Messiah is to come, right? Do you believe this? And the man answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So here we get the final moment, but it comes after persecution. It comes after him being willing to witness to the truth at whatever cost, right? So his faith is, has taken root 
It was planted when he was healed and given his sight, but it's grown. First he witnesses as a, that Jesus is a prophet, but now he's saying he's the son of man. He's the Messiah. And he worships him. So this is really key. So he's left the synagogue and he's entered the church in, in this symbolic action here. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. Okay, so this is a, probably a reference to the Gentiles too, that uh, the Gentiles who were not part of the chosen people welcomed the word of God and, and baptism. Uh, and many of the chosen people of Israel did not. So this is a great mystery. If you want to read more about it, you can read Romans chapters 9 to 11 where Paul wrestles with this in his own life and his own family and so on. So there's this division in, in the people of Israel. And our Lord says, I, I came for this division to bring this about. And there's, there's some meaning to this. Uh, so those who do not see may see. Those who see may become blind. So this is a reference, a pretty pointed reference to the Pharisees themselves. And they hear this and they say, uh, hey, are we also blind? Uh, and Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. You know, if it were the case that you didn't have the law of Moses, for example, then who would fault you? But the fact that you have this gift and you can't see what's, what's happened, he says, you say that we see, your guilt remains. So because they believe that our Lord is a sinner and they, they, they're they're fixed on this interpretation. They're blind to what he's, what's actually happening in their midst, which is God is in the world reconciling the world to God. Uh, but in, in this mysterious way, this comes about through persecution, which is, uh, should help us to read a certain challenge we have today. Because I think most of us know if you're going to say outright that you're a Christian and you're, you're, you believe the teachings of the Catholic Church, there are going to be people who are going to give you a hard time at the very least. We're not going to get killed yet, I hope. Um, but I remember Cardinal George's uh, uh, prediction, prophecy, whatever it is. I'm, you know, we'll see what happens. That uh, his predecessor would end his life in jail, and that his, the predecessor would, to him would be uh, executed in the public square. And then after that, the the uh, the next generation would come and build up society again. <laughs> So we'll see. I, I, I'm not sure how much danger uh, Cardinal Supich is in right now, but uh, uh, we'll see. Uh, so anyway, so that, that is my interpretation. We see that this man, by being cured of blindness, is a symbol of what happens in baptism. This is why we read this gospel at one of the scrutinies for the catechumens during Lent, uh, to help the, the catechumens understand what baptism is, is, what it will do for them. And uh, it, part of what they're going to realize is that, again, uh, learning about who Christ is, being able to affirm Christ's identity may come with persecution, may come with uh, division within your family, for example. Um, and I, I'll just say we, we find this in the monastery in a different kind of way. Generally speaking, today, when people enter monasteries, uh, your families don't necessarily like it right away. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the first choice parents have for their kids these days. It's not a judgment on any of our parents. It's just to say that to enter a monastery requires a certain kind of dividing of the family uh, that then is reconciled in a spiritual realm, right? So it's reconciled in, in uh, a higher order. 
And so in this world, there's this division that takes place. It is to bring about the reconciliation at a higher level. Okay, I'm going to stop there. And in the time we have left, I'd like to know if you have any questions or observations about uh, this chapter 9 or anything I said today. Yes? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I don't want to denigrate the idea of a miracle because you know the, the, the Greek word means a wonder, you know, something that's wonderful. And and they are wonderful. Um, uh, I, my my concern is that we would misinterpret them again as God sort of uh, coming from somewhere else and changing the laws of nature and contradicting them in some way. Um, so, uh, but because the miracles in the synoptic gospels have the same function, they're meant to be signs. So uh, when our Lord heals the sick, it's, it's not simply because he's a nice guy and feels bad for them, but it's a sign of the spiritual healing that he offers us in baptism, right? And the, the spiritual growth uh, and and strength that we get from the Eucharist. Um, the multiplication of the loaves, which we get in all four Gospels, is a sign of the Eucharist. So now to, I think the fact that the people in his hometown didn't have faith, this is uh, again a, a kind of parable about what happens if we don't use our faith to read the signs and instead try to interpret them from some other place. Uh, they don't work. They don't take spiritually, right? They don't reside in us and do the interior work of sanctifying us. Uh, they just, be, and, and as, again, the, um, the atheists might even say like, well, yeah, Jesus could, could have been a miracle worker, but it was some trick, <laughs> you know. So does that answer your question or no? Mm-hmm. Versus just healing more than oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I think, um, I think, I, I'm not sure I'll be able to find it right now, but I think it actually says he wasn't able to work many signs. I think that's the word that Mark uses yeah, in that particular it's, passage. Yeah, uh, I was just like searching and then like uh-huh. different translations once a miracle, it says powerful deeds. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right, right. So he was able to do wonderful things, but he wasn't able to change anybody's mind. <laughs> I think that maybe that's what Mark's getting at. Mark and John, again, they have many interesting things in common, and they both tend to use irony. So again, they use signs that can be read in two ways. So it creates a division between those who see what they're saying in the light of faith and those who say, ah, you see. So the, the example I like to use is uh, in the story of the rich young man in Mark's gospel, When he comes to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. And uh, a college friend of mine once pointed to that passage and said, see, Jesus didn't think he was God. And and that bothered me at the time. But now I say, well, he didn't say that. He just asked a question and no one answered it. And if if the guy had answered it and said, "Um, I guess I called you good because I think you're the Messiah, 
then he might have been able to leave everything and follow him. <laughs> but the fact that he didn't hear the question, it didn't register at that level, um, is, an, is a sign for us that he didn't have the faith that he needed to leave everything and follow the Lord. So, um, so Mark, in this particular case, might be making that kind of sly suggestion again. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. Um, if I understood you correctly, um, we have this, this uh, current dispensation mm -hmm. where we know one another and we know God uh, through this realm of science. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of a, a, a provisional sort of uh, situation mm -hmm. um, while we inhabit uh, temporality. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a, a future where we will know God directly without the need for a symbolic order. Mm -hmm. Am I mm -hmm. understanding that? That's correct. correct. Yeah, yeah. How, um, how, how, do you, how do you square that with the idea of the resurrection of the body, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So our bodies, uh, we will uh, have spiritual bodies after the resurrection and, and uh, they will be completely responsive to our, our spiritual natures, you know. Uh, so we will discover, it's, it's hard for us to picture this, we'll discover that our spiritual bodies make up this one body of Christ in a way that we can't see right now. Um, and, but we'll experience it from the inside as it were. So we'll still have, uh, creation will be something, the new creation will be something that will be completely celebratory, but it will also be, as I say, responsive to our wills because they will be one with God's will in a way that right now things are, they kind of, we, we butt up against the limitations of this order because we can't change it. We, it our spirits are, are, are being trained and disciplined through this world. But at some point, we're going to graduate from this pedagogy to a place where, again, like our Lord, we can go through walls, we can be several places at once. Uh, our, our Lord can be on every altar on Sunday, but not be divided. You know, so, so it's hard to explain because it's, it's something that transcends our, our current experience. But it's, it's what we're hoping for is that... Uh, you know, just as a, a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, when, we're, when we are resurrected, it's a new reality. We can get glimpses of it now. Uh, mystics enter into that reality now. Uh, but they can't really say what happened when they come back. <laughs> they, they can't put it into words, because to put it into words is already to adulterate it in some way. To, uh, Dante's Paradiso is full of uh, indirect, indirection, because he's trying to describe... Personally, I think Dante had a mystical experience and he's trying to describe it, but he can't tell you exactly what happened. And when he finally gets to the beatific vision, he says, I can't, I, I can't talk anymore. I have to stop and all I can give you is silence. <laughs> so, so it's there, it's in the tradition, but it's, it, it transcends speech for the very reason that speech is a part of this temporal order because it's a series of signs. Yes, Dennis. Just speaking of uh, God's universe, there is a meteor shower tonight after 11 o'clock. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Percy's uh, meteor shower. Yeah, between like 80 and 200 an hour or something like yeah, that. It's yeah, really yeah. Incredible. yeah, it's really incredible. Yeah, it's really, I hope this guy's a Mm-hmm. Right, right. 
And we spin it at a thousand miles an hour. Ah. It's another universal thing that really uh, intrigues me. Uh huh. You know, if the laws of nature, gravity disappeared, then that would be it, right? Yep. Yep. We all need God. Well, the, the the laws of physics are really, um, you know, in the last like twenty or thirty years, there there have been these scientists who advanced this uh, thing called the anthropic principle. And the, the, the idea is that if there are many, many, many physical constants in the universe, and if you change any one of them by like, you know, 0.001% or something, life can't exist. So the, the universe is fine-tuned to make it possible for this little planet to create life. And uh, um, this suggests to some people that maybe there's a, a, a mind behind the creation <laughs> and a benevolent one, <laughs> right? So, anything else? All right. Well, thank you so much, and I will uh, see you. You're welcome. I will see you in September, and then October I will be away. Father Brendan will uh, speak to you about one of the church fathers, and uh, might do Irenaeus again. We'll see. I, I don't remember. So let's uh, pray together and ask Our Lady's intercession today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.